we are living in a war zone and our world is fallen and I'm not being a bummer by saying this our world is full fallen and decaying we know that and yet I sit in my backyard sometimes and I look at it it's pretty darn nice isn't it I mean think of your happy place where's your happy place is it out in the woods uh is it at the beach at the beach a lot of people right beach and you look and 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 there's such the mount for me uh my most happy place uh was in the uh, Colorado foothills uh, I just Man, when I, used to, when I was in seminary, we lived there for about uh, three, four years, and uh, uh, that was, to me, just seeing the grandeur of God. It was just, it was gorgeous, and yet I know for a fact that the Bible says that the earth is, is going to be remade, that what we see is not what God originally planned, that there's death and there's decay and there's all this kind of stuff going on, and, and we know that we're in spiritual battle. How do I know that we're in spiritual battle? How do you know? Because you are constantly dealing with your fears you're constantly dealing with struggles you got personal relationships that just seem to never you know you're trying to make them click you're trying to make them click it tr- that is true of so many even those who are really you know the children of god but listen god has not left us defenseless and once we understand the situation okay that we're in a battle and we prepare accordingly we will have success I believe, and Paul said, and God says, we will have success through anything that our great enemy can throw against us. I believe that. I tell our, our staff all the time, you know, I don't want to get you guys nervous, but you all got targets on your back. I just want you to know that. Satan would love nothing better as he throws, you know, these traps before us to, to us to be uh, uh, found in, in, in sin or to do something stupid because it's not only going to bring you down, it's going to bring ever, a lot of other people down. And so we need the protection that God provides. And this morning I want to talk about shoes. Some people just got really excited because I know in your closet today when you were looking for your shoes, you went in and it's not nice and they're all like in a pile at your closet, right? And you say, well, okay, here's the one. And oh, here's the other. No, this is the brown one. This is the, anybody is, come on, honestly. Is, is, yes, okay. We got, some, we got some heads going up and down. I know, that, I know that's true. Uh, shoes are basically a fashion statement today. They're a fashion statement, even for the ones that you work out in. Um, but listen, here's the deal, and I know this is true. If your feet ain't happy, the rest of you ain't happy. Uh, and you, you know that's true. You know, you talk about a battle. I mean, it's hard enough for some people to, to stand on their feet all day at work behind a counter, ringing up customers, or walking down endless, it seems like, aisles. But did you know that often we don't help matters because of the shoes that we wear? I found out this week more about shoe health and foot health than I ever really wanted to know. And I found out that wearing the wrong kind of shoes can be really very detrimental to your your health. Bad shoes can cause pain literally in your whole body. A whole litany of problems go to bad shoes. And it's back pain and muscle spasms and spinal discs breaking down and headaches and joint problems, and I looked, I'm reading all this stuff through a number of articles, I'm saying, you know, was this, did Skechers write this, or New Balance, or something like that, I mean, it must be somebody who has, you know, some skin in the game, but it wasn't, Um, and, and the problem, according to experts, is getting worse, doctors who treat feet 
are seeing more patients now that have more problems caused by their shoes. In fact, one person wrote this. Though everyone loves a good pair of shoes that show off their style, when it comes to footwear and your health, opt for function over fashion. Yeah, right. That's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Amen? Yeah, I, I, I'm not saying that's good, but, but let's, let's, let's face facts. Shall we? And sometimes the most popular shoes are not doing you any good at all. Um, you, you, know, you know these, don't you? Do you know these? Uh, I, I, I think when you graduate from nursing school, uh, you have to sign something that you will wear no other shoe, but, but cry, although I think it's changing now. But, uh, you know, there are certain professions that wear, what are they called? They're Crocs, and, 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 we, and we get it. Well, the, a podiatrist by the name of Megan Leahy at the Illinois Bone and Joint Institute, and I said, that sounds so phony, the Illinois Bone and Joint Institute. So I went on. It's, they have like 96 doctors, foot doctors at this place. It's like, it's like the biggest place, the biggest private-owned uh, foot place in, in America. So it's really, it's, it's, it's really bona fide. Well, anyway. Bonafide. There you go. Megan Leahy um, uh, told, uh, she said this, she told the Huffington Post recently, while Crocs, America's favorite plastic shoe, are often praised for their ease and comfort, they apparently aren't suitable for everyday use. She said, although clogs are nice, uh, they don't offer arch support and, or do offer arch support, they are seriously lacking in another crucial area. Heel support. So if you wear Crocs all the time, your heels will start to flatten out and you'll get heel pain, which affects your spine. How about these? These are cool looking. Who wore these exclusively all summer? A lot of people wore them all summer. They're very comfortable. They're flip-flops. You wear them in the summer. Uh, The problem is they destroy the arch of your foot. Did you know that? They flatten out the arch of your foot. And, And these, these, according to experts should never be worn at any time, at any function, for any reason, ever. These should never be worn by human beings. They were never meant to be worn by people made in the image of God. And according to the study from the University of Alabama recently, no less than 123,355 high heel-related injuries were treated in emergency rooms in the United States just a couple of years ago. The foot and the human body was never meant to endure the tortures and destructive fallout for wearing one of these or two of these. And yet, shoes are important. People in nations, developing nations that don't have shoes, uh, they, de- they develop all sorts of, uh, not only injuries, but diseases. And that's, that was one of the geniuses of, you remember Tom's? I think Tom's is still in Tom's is still in business, aren't they? Well, you buy one, you, get, you give one. And, and, and the guy from Tom's, he spoke at the GLS a few years ago, and he said, you know what? Uh, you, you, you can't believe uh, that there are people walking around without any shoes, and this is what happens to them if they don't walk around in any shoes. So we want to get shoes to people. They're important, but they're most important when you're in battle. You cannot go into battle shoeless or wearing the wrong shoe. And unless we have the right kind of shoes, we're never going to be successful in battle. Paul says, you want to know how to stand against rulers and against authorities and powers in this dark world and against spiritual forces in the heavenly realms? Everybody wants that. Then you have to put on pieces of armor. And one of the pieces of armor, although we don't think of it very often, are good shoes. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. And so basically this morning... I want to look at the need, really, real simple, the need for good shoes in battle, 
why are they essential? Then uh, the nature of a good shoe in battle. And then the application. How do you, how do you, apply, how do you lace them up, basically? How do you lace up a good pair of shoes that we're going to need? Well, number one, the first one is the need for good-fitting shoes in battle. Now, actually, the footwear of the typical Roman soldier, it was, it was way different than any other footwear that anybody else wore literally on the planet at that time. They were called by one, it was called by one, a, a heavy military sandal. What does that mean? You know, sandal, a heavy military sandal. Basically, it was half boot, half sandal. And the uppers uh, were, were heavy leather. They had an open design, which gave good ventilation when they're marching and stuff like that. There was a lot of straps. In other words, they could, they could give you the same shoe, a guy who's 6'11 and a guy who's 5'1", uh, feet, you know, from here to here, and there were enough straps around it where you could take the straps and maneuver them so that they would fit snugly no matter how big your feet were. Um, the soles were made of several layers of uh, thick leather, three-quarters of an inch thick. I know this looks like See, they're wearing that. How did they ever conquer the world? They're wearing stuff like that. This is actually 2,000-year-old sandals. If you have 2,000-year-old sandals, they're in better shape. Let me know. They found this not that long ago. And, and basically, um, at the bottom of these sandals, I think they're in great shape, um, you found these little uh, studded bottoms, these hobnails, these little nails that you could see there in the picture underneath. Kind of like, what are they kind of like? They're like cleats. They're like cleats t- that we have today. Now, these boot-like sandals worn by the soldiers were designed basically to do three things and only three things. They were designed, first of all, for protection. They were made to protect the feet of the soldier. A very common practice back then was for an enemy, how devious, how terrible, they would plant these little sticks, small twigs that... um, They'd sharpen to a razor's edge, and then they would plant them. All, they were like landmines. They'd plant them all over the battlefield, and then they'd cover them. They, they would almost be invisible. They would be camouflaged either by leaves or other things, especially if you're walking through a forest. And what would happen? Well, the soldiers would be walking by. I don't care how big. I don't care how brave. I don't care how skilled you are. You could be the best soldier in the army. If you stepped on one of these things and you weren't protected, the, the, the little branch would go through your foot. And guess what? The object is to kill or incapacitate your enemy, right? If somebody can't walk, how much fighting are they doing? If you've ever broken your toe, your little toe, which I think everybody in my family has broken their, their little toe, you, the complaining and the bellyache, you can't even imagine. For a little toe, right, Emily? For a little toe, it's unbelievable. And, and no, I'm just seeing her. I'm not saying anything. I'm just, just, she just caught my eye there. Um, but could you imagine if it hurts that much for a little toe? Could you imagine having, having wood go through the center of your foot? They, they couldn't fight. So the first reason they had these sandals, these heavy military sandals, were, were to protect the soldier's foot. Second thing, the soldier's shoe was designed for the soldier's stability in battle. Those hobnails enabled the Roman legionnaire to literally dig his feet in, no matter where the battle took them, whether it was in mud or snow or dra- driving rain, all kinds of weather, all kinds of terrain, he would be able to hold his ground. I remember one time I was playing football, and it, it was before the season, everybody didn't have their cleats. I know, today it's like, that would be unthinkable. But I remember, you know, trying to tackle somebody with, with you wearing your sneakers. It's impossible. 
on wet surface, you're slipping and sliding all over the place. you got to have something to dig in. It would be like playing soccer. The same thing, those of you who have played sports. you got to have something that will keep you uh, stable, something with good traction, good adhesion. It is crucial for victory. One more thing about the shoe, the heavy Roman military sandal. They were made for mobility. These shoes were made not only to enable the soldier to stand his ground, but once the furious initial assault of the enemy was thwarted, to gain ground back again, to take the battle to the enemy, to move. Maybe they had lost some ground. Not anymore. We're moving forward. So they were able to move forward. They were light enough to be able not to hinder the soldiers. And, and so it wasn't mainly for defensive measures, but they had offensive capability because of these sandals and the way they were made. Good shoes were important in order to withstand attack as well as to swiftly move forward. These sandals were designed to protect their feet, to give them stability, and to give them an advantage in mobility, in moving forward quickly as the circumstances of the battle changed. One of the reasons that the Roman army was so powerful, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I read it. I read it by people who who figured this stuff out, was their footwear. There was a need for a good shoe in battle. What was the nature? What is the nature of a good fitting shoe in battle? What is there about a good fitting shoe? Now, listen, uh, the, the Apostle Paul is it talking about shoes? He's not, he's, not, he's not preaching to the generations to, you know what, you really need good footwear. That's, that's the object of the lesson. He's, he's chained to a legionnaire in prison, and he had just, chapters 1 through 5 of Ephesians, which, by the way, we're starting a new series uh, in the third week of September, chapters 1 through 5 in Ephesians, okay? We'll be talking about that later. But he talks through Ephesians 1 through 5 about everything that he sums up here. And he's saying, how can I... I gotta give these guys a picture about what everything that I've been talking about. Oh, I know. Oh, hey, come over here. Stand up, will you? And he used the legionnaire's outfit to as a device, a device to put it in, into the brains of the people how to remember what we have to put on the gifts that God has given us to put on so that we could withstand the battle. So he's looking at this and 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 he's he's trying to give them this 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 good picture of what we, you know, spiritually, how we stand up. And he says in verse 14, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now you read this and you say, okay, I get it. There's always, you know, this equals this. And so what's happening here is that the shoes represent the gospel of peace. No, that's not, that's not it at all. That's not what it says. The gospel of peace is the object of a prepositional phrase. It's the, in a sense, it's the subject. You might say the object of the sentence. What's the object of the sentence? What is it? It's that word that's kind of in the middle there. Readiness. Readiness, or if you have an old, older translation, preparation. It's the Greek word, uh, it means to be prepared. The readiness comes from where? 
The gospel of peace. It's the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. First comes the gospel, then you're ready. If you don't have the gospel of peace, you're not ready and your shoes are defective. Now, we talked about thick leather, sturdy, adjustable straps and metal studs. Um, But, you know, again, Paul's talking about spiritual shoes here. And he's talking about how he can advance, stand, and then advance against the enemy. Now, when you hear the word peace, the gospel of peace, when you hear, hear the word peace, what do you think of? A lot of people just think... Well, no, no war, right? Um, someone wrote, a uh, historian said that uh, peace is when nations reload. And a lot of times that, that's what we consider to be peace. And in a way, listen, in a way, if people aren't shooting at each other, there is a relative peace. You know, when Jesus was born, there was peace on earth there, there, there was, in a, in a relative sense, did that mean there was, there was no, you know, egregious actions going on? No. But there were no major battles going on in the world, as far as we knew, when Jesus was born. Uh, so, but it's more than that. When the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, talks about peace, do you know what the word for peace in the Old Testament is? Shalom. Shalom to you too. Shalom. You say it hi, you say it goodbye. Basically, it, it had a much bigger meaning than, you know, no all-out war going on. Um, uh, basically, that word shalom it talked about a deep sense of harmony, a deep feeling of well-being. When's the last time you felt, you just felt like, uh, oh, I just feel hugged or something. You know, you just, you feel, you feel good. You feel great. You feel safe. You, you feel like you want to share. You feel like you want to be out there. You feel like you want to live life. You know, it, there's harmony. There's wholeness. You know, even even though, have the circumstances of your life changed? No. Many times the circumstances have not even changed. But yet, there's this feeling, shalom is this feeling of well-being, of being cared for. That's what the word means. Like in a war, you could, you could actually feel a war could be going on, and, and you could actually have a sense of peace and well-being. We don't think so, but Paul is saying you can. In fact, a real biblical shalom can only be identified, I think, while we are in the midst of a commotion. How else would we know the difference? How else would we not know the peace that passes what? All understanding. The world is falling down, and somehow I feel peace. That's either, you know, mental problems or God's spirit. The spirit of peace. Rudyard Kipling was uh, an English poet and uh, his uh, short story writer. His most famous poem was a poem entitled If. And when I was a kid, uh, I had to memorize it. We had to memorize it, believe it or not. And I think it'd be great for kids to memorize it today. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to read a couple of portions. Kipling wrote this. He said, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired of waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good, nor talk too wise, 
If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to, broken and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. He goes on like that for a few other verses, and he gets to the punchline. He gets to what he's coming to. He says, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And what will you become? He said, and you'll be a man, my son. What does that mean? Mature. See, a person, and that's why they had us memorize when we were kids. A person who ends up like this, that's, a, that's kind of a whole person. That's a mature person. That's someone who, even though you know, there is, there's confusion and commotion and instability, they remain confident. They remain stable. Peace. Shalom, baby. That's what it means. When Paul refers to peace in this verse, I think he's referring to two things specifically. I think he's referring to peace with God and to the peace of God. Those are the two things he's talking about. And it's interesting to note, you can't have one without the other. You cannot have the peace of God without peace with God. First, peace, peace with God. In Romans chapter 5, and verse 10, it says this. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You know what I find so, so, so amazing in that verse? I find the second part really amazing. That God has reconciled us. Uh, Christ has reconciled us to God through, through, through uh, the, his sacrifice. But you know what I find even more interesting? While if, while we were God's, what is it? Enemies. Well, he doesn't really mean that. He just means, he was a little, he was a little miffed at us. He was a little Folks, do a little study. You got time? Do a little study on how many times in Scripture the Bible refers to people in their sins as God's enemies. That is why on the cross, when we say, the cross is all love. The cross is certainly love, but I'll tell you what the cross is. The cross is payment for sin. The cross is God's wrath being poured out on sinful men and women. We wear crosses around our neck. I get it. And I know you're, you, you know, it's not like uh, you, you have an electric chair hanging around your, your, your neck, but it would have been in the first century if you did something like that because the cross was the thing that you wanted to avoid most. Because it was an object of wrath. The Roman government showed their wrath against the citizens who were treasonous, who had committed uh, terrible crimes, and they hung them on a cross. See, we were the enemies of God, Paul is saying again and again and again. But now, now something happened. And we're not. We're not. The good news of the gospel, is that we don't have to do anything for peace with God. See, the peace has already been made. The treaty has already been signed in the blood of his son. And basically, what the cross says, post-cross, is that God is no longer angry. Our sins are forgiven, and all we have to do, you know what we have to do? Sign the peace treaty. 
All we need to do is sign the peace treaty. It's already been written up. Lawyers have looked at it. Everything's all squared. Come here, sign it. God is satisfied. Listen, God is satisfied with the death of Jesus Christ to take away our sin and to remove all the penalty that would have been ours. And all we have to do, listen, all we have to do is be satisfied with what satisfies God. That's all we have to do. God declares that the cross was enough to end all hostilities. And when we agree with that, war's over. Which leads, by the way, to the peace of God. Peace with God leads to the peace of God. In fact, there's, no other, there's really no other way to get that. When we, when we can now, for the first time, experience intimacy with God, everything changes. And when we experience intimacy with God, folks, he begins to, he begins to tell us things. Think of the first person you ever had intimacy with. What, what, what made for intimacy? They told you things that maybe they hadn't told anybody else. They told you things who maybe you had heard before, but now because of the intimacy, because of the relationship that's been established, for the very first time you believe it. For the very first time you believe maybe what's even been said before. See, the good news is that we can have the peace of God when we have peace with God. And he begins to speak to us, and he tells us things. And he tells us things like, I love you. We sang about it. I really do love you, my child. Do you have anybody in your life that you could say, really, honestly, honest, that you could really say, no matter what they do, no matter what they have done, I will always love you. You may break my heart, you have broken my heart. But you will never break my love. Never. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Billy Graham, the great evangelist, died, uh, I think it was February a year ago. I think it was just a little more than a year ago. And uh, at many dignities... You know, dignitaries were there, and his children uh, said something. And his youngest daughter, Ruth Graham, uh, shared a stirring story 
of her father's unconditional love and forgiveness. I want to I read you her words. After 21 years, my marriage ended in divorce. I was devastated. I floundered. My husband had betrayed me at the deepest levels. I understood I had biblical grounds for divorce, but I did not want to be divorced. I did not want to hurt or displease God in any way. My family thought it would be, would be a good idea for me to move away from the Shenandoah Valley to get a fresh start somewhere else. So I decided to live in Florida near my older sister, Gigi, and her family, and near a good church. The pastor of that church introduced me to a handsome widower, and we began to date fast and furiously. My children didn't like him, but I thought, they're almost grown, grown, and they can't tell me what to do. I know what's best for my life. My mother called me from Seattle. My father called me from Tokyo. They said, honey, why don't you just slow down? Let us get to know this man. But they had never been a single parent. They had never been divorced. What did they know? So, being stubborn, willful, and sinful, I married this man on New Year's Eve, and within 24 hours, I knew that I had made a terrible mistake. After five weeks, I fled. I was afraid of him. But what was I going to do? I wanted to go talk to my mother and my father. On my way to Montreat in North Carolina, Billy Graham's home, on the way to Mon Montreat, I stopped and picked up my daughter, Windsor, from boarding school. I was wrecked. I was coming home with my life in pieces. Shame weighed me down. I dreaded having to meet my parents' gaze. I didn't think I could handle what their eyes might communicate. I wanted to run and to hide, but I could not. I had nowhere else to go. I could not undo my mistake. I knew I had to face it. I felt unworthy to go home, but I needed my parents. I look back now, overwhelmed by God's tenderness and timing, for it was at this, my darkest hour, that God stepped in with one of his most powerful metaphors in my entire life. It was a two-day drive to Montreat. Questions whirled in my mind. What was I going to say to Daddy? What was I going to say to Mother? What was I going to say to my children? I'd been such a failure. What were they going to say to me? We're tired of fooling around with you. We told you not to do this. You have embarrassed us. Many of you know that we live on the side of a mountain. And as I wound myself up the mountain, I rounded the last bend in my father's driveway, and my father was standing there waiting for me. My father, who had every reason to rebuke, wrapped his strong arms around me, pulled me into his warm embrace, and greeted me with these simple words, welcome home. There was no shame, there was no blame, there was no condemnation, just unconditional love. My father's embrace at that moment was one of the most profound gestures of acceptance I had ever experienced. To be utterly broken 
and still be accepted. To feel ugly and yet be loved. To feel like an outcast and still be welcomed. I marveled at the contrast between my heart full of shame and regret and my father's so filled with love. I must have felt many things at once in his arms. Shock, relief, gratitude, safety, disbelief. One thing I most definitely felt was shattered. And through his embrace, my father let me know I had permission to feel that way. He was not condemning me. No defense or explanation was required. My father was not God. But he showed me what God is like that day. His one act of grace changed my life and informed me who I am. I am so grateful God accepts me as I am, hurting, wounded, and broken. I am glad he chooses me to be part of his family, regardless of my past mistakes and sins. He wants me. He cares about me. His arms are open to me at all times. Even when I am in the ruins, God stands watching the road, eager for me to come to him. God doesn't stop at ruin. It's where he begins. And brokenness is a qualification for service to him. God does not hold in his hand the list of my failures. He's not waiting to judge me. He is waiting to be with me. He is waiting to embrace me. And welcome me home. When you are in Christ, your judgment day has already happened. It's already occurred at the cross. And now, now Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we have peace with God, Jobs are lost, relationships suffer blows, sometimes in a way, way beyond their control. Dreams could be dashed, friends fail us, the brutalities of life, they come in. And there are moments when they seem that they're going to dash you to pieces. Confusion and turmoil, many times, yes, they wait like a thief, ready to rob us of the peace that God brings The Crossing Church, it is at those times that we need to remember that we have peace with God. And because we have peace with God, we can have and know the peace of God. Essential. Essential to a good-fitting shoe, which was essential to battle, was having established peace with God, which led to the peace of God. But do you ever forget that? I do. We, we, we forget that he will never turn us away. We forget that through, that, that though we, we uh, go through a time where we, we break his heart, we literally break the heart of our father who loves us, we will never break his love for us. But when we do, when we do, it's really difficult to have peace in our souls, isn't it? It just is. 
We will never have the peace of God unless we experience and remember that we have peace with God. And the main reason you don't have peace maybe today, one of the reasons, maybe you're Christian, maybe you don't have uh, uh, the peace of God, is because you know what? You're unsure if you have peace with God. But you can be sure today. All you need to do, and those who maybe know they don't have peace with God, all you need to do is say, you know what? I hear that there's a peace treaty. I want to have peace with you, God. I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter. I, I confess my sin. I repent of my sin. And I believe what Jesus said about himself, that he is the only way to the Father. And you do that, you will have peace with God. And maybe for the first time in your life, you'll begin to experience the peace of God. You know what? That's all part of the nature of a good fitting shoe. Quickly, one more thing. The application of a good fitting shoe. How do you, how do you put it on? Remember what I said about Roman footwear, what it did uh, for the soldier? Uh, it, it gave him stability. It gave him protection. It gave him mobility. Folks, Scripture is filled with individuals who, because they had peace with God, had the peace of God, even though they found themselves ensconced in the most difficult of circumstances. The world was swirling all around them. In Judges chapter 7, God calls a man by the name of Gideon, really a coward, when, 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 when the angel of God finds him to bring him a message, say, hey, you're, you're my man, what was he doing? He was hiding. He was hiding from the Midians. And, and, and when, when the, the angel said to him, you know what, uh, you're God's man, he goes, uh, wait a minute, what, let me look at you. What's the address? Your GPS, you know, brought you to the wrong city, the wrong town. That's certainly not me. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, but yet Gideon won a great victory. What, what, what were the odds? Odds were about even, weren't they? It was 300 against multiple, multiple tens of thousands of the enemy. And God brought the victory. Acts chapter 4, beginning of the church age, Peter and John, they're preaching boldly. They're preaching the resurrection. And, and you know, uh, people are getting saved. People are coming. You know, they're, they're, they're kind of realizing that this is the Messiah. And, and, and the, the religious leaders are getting nervous, and, they, and not just nervous, they're getting angry. And they brought Peter and John in, and they had all the power. They could do anything they wanted to them. And they said, listen, don't you ever preach in that name again. If you decide to preach in that name again, you wait and watch what we're going to do to you. We've done it to others. We'll do it to you. But in the process, Peter stood up and he said this. It says, but Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. We can't, we can't stop. We are so grateful for what we've seen. We're so grateful for how God has dealt with our hearts. So courageous. They didn't fear those who could literally take their life away because they knew that Jesus was on their side. And so we can stand in complete, absolute confidence on solid ground of the gospel of peace, knowing that God is on our side. No matter what the circumstances are that come against us. Verse 10 of Ephesians 6 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and what? In his mighty power. Satan, you can come against me, 
But I know that I can stand firm because I have tied on shoes that anchor me to the ground. I am immovable because God is on my side. When we embrace the gospel that brings peace, we will stand firm knowing that God is on our side. If you're putting on the shoes, if you're a Christian, you have the ability to do this. Satan will lie to you and say you don't. You have no chance against them. It is a lie. When someone has just done something to you that's about to ruin your week emotionally, you're about, you know, this is it. Uh, you know, you got to talk me down. Uh, you can say in the context of eternity, what's this? In the context of my crown, in the context of my place at the head of the family table, what is this? They were confident. And they were grateful, and they were trusting. They could afford to be because they knew that God was on their side. They had peace with God, so they had the peace of God. And when we embrace the gospel that brings peace, we will stand firm against the enemy. Folks, you know as well as I do, the terrain of Christian living can be slippery and rough. But you know what the Bible says about peace? Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, and he said, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He wrote to the church of Colossians. He said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and what? Be thankful. 800 years before Christ, the prophet said, you will keep in perfect peace those whose mind are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. Someone wrote this. They said, when God sees this type of prayerful, grateful faith, when our mind is squared on him, the peace of God expands within us. It stabilizes our runaway emotions. It centers our minds. It guides our footsteps and even overflows into experience with others. It cools our sharp tongues. It dismantles our emotional walls, and it keeps us from being so difficult to be around. He was writing to other people. He wasn't writing. Not, not here, but just other people who are difficult to be around. You face circumstances. We face challenges of every shape and every size and every kind. Yet think with me for a moment, all right? Just as we close, think with me for a moment. What are a few things... In that in spite of the challenges you face right now, what are some things that you could be thankful for? Is there anything? I'll bet you there are. What are they? Think in your minds. The way we put on the shoes of peace, which will enable us to battle against the enemy and have victory, is to trust the one who has on the cross bought our peace with God, established us in his everlasting love. And so then we express our gratitude to him. Once you have peace with God, then you begin to see it develops. You know what it develops? That word in the middle of that sentence, readiness. It starts to develop readiness. That means once you see that every debt has been paid, 
Once you see that God loves you with an unconditional eternal love, once you become grateful towards him for what he has done, instead of being mad at him, once you begin to see the real problem is that, you know what? It's not that so many bad things happen to us, but why do so many good things happen to us? When that happens, you start to experience the peace of God. But until you do, I wonder if we've even grasped the gospel. I wonder if we've even grasped it. This afternoon... When you were home, when you were out, when you were about, and the enemy begins to fill your heart with fear, when he begins to fill, fill, uh, fill your mind with strife, remember to trust in the one who cares for you and to thank him for what he has done and what he is doing in your life. And if you do that, and when you do that, watch. His peace will begin to immediately become a reality in your life. And when it happens, you will know that your feet have been fitted with a shalom that passes all understanding. When we embrace the gospel that brings peace, we will stand firm against our enemy. But if we don't, we never will. Decide to stand today. Decide to embrace the gospel of peace so that you will be ready when the enemy comes a-calling, which you surely will.